This morning we do our third sermon on Genesis 1. First week we looked at creation, second, sorry, God, then we looked at creation, and this week we were looking specifically at humanity and what the scriptures teach about who we are uh, from the Word of God. So, hear the Word of the God of God this morning. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, the very first words that you that humanity ever heard came from your mouth. And we need to hear from you this morning, if we are to understand these words properly, that we might have a, a right and proper interpretation of our world and experience it truthfully and accurately. And so set us free from the confusion that reigns concerning who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. I ask that you would be gracious to us, opening our ears, our minds, and our hearts to the transforming truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the living word. Amen. It's uh, no small thing to say that there's a little bit of confusion as to why we exist, uh, why humans uh, exist specifically. Uh, and last week we started by talking a little bit about presuppositions and the idea that presuppositions are unprovable assumptions that we make that determine, that we basically build our worldview on. There are a lot of assumptions that are made in a naturalistic view of creation, the world, the universe. And one of the basic assumptions that is given is that we are basically a cosmic accident. Now, it may be put in other framework, other words, other kinds of things, but that is essentially what the naturalistic worldview says, is that we are an accident. We exist, we came to be through some process of natural selection, we are advanced apes, we have no inherent dignity, we have no purpose unless we provide one for ourselves, we have no goals unless we provide one for ourselves, and ultimately we have no hope. That's really how it all sort of plays out. Now, if you talk to a naturalist, they're not going to say all that. Uh, they're going to go into some other philosophical gymnastics to try and make you feel good about the fact that you are a, mis- you are a cosmic accident. Scripture has a very different approach to why we're here. 
approach, an approach that gives us great dignity, that grants us, I think, great hope because there is a purpose in view. That there is a goal that we're moved, that God is moving us toward. And so we're not an accident just trying to figure out what to do between cradle to grave. But we are here for a reason in the providence of our good God. The big idea this morning is that Jesus restores Christians to represent God's rule and reflect God's glory. So that's kind of where I'm going to unpack from this part of Genesis chapter 1 this morning. And the first part of this unpacking is that we are made in His image, well, as made in His image, humanity represents God's rule. A great shift takes place. Last night, we had a little play. And one of the things that happened during our little play is that there was music whenever someone showed up. And whenever Bad Bart showed up, what did we hear? All right. There you go. The Darth Vader theme. Okay? And if you're watching Star Wars, whenever you hear that, you know something bad is going to happen because Darth Vader just showed up. Okay? Often in, in, in plays and in movies and TV shows, there is a change in the music that indicates that something different is about to happen. Here in the text, we have a shift, a change, not, a, not necessarily a musical change, but something significant takes place that lets us know that something big is about to happen. The pattern changes. Where before it was God just saying, let there be, changes. Now it's, let us make. There is something God is already setting apart humanity just from how he's talking about the creation of humanity. It's not business as usual. And then right in the middle of this section, a poem breaks out. Okay, Hebrew poetry, that's not in the rest of this text. Something incredibly significant takes place with the creation of people. Something that we think as so ordinary. Why? Because we're surrounded by people. We give birth to people. We interact with people all the time. And so we don't think that people are all that special. And yet, Scripture does indeed treat us as if we are something kind of special. By virtue of who made us and why. He says, let us make humanity, or man, in our image, in our likeness. Two words, looking at it, I mean, they're very similar words, but they look at it from a slightly different perspective. Image has this idea of a representation of deity. The ancient Near East was filled with idols. Little statues that represented their gods. That's the idea. They were made in the image of what they thought of the God that they thought was in heaven. And what this does, excuse me, is it represents the authority. A king would do this as well in the ancient Near East. Uh, He would have a little image made of himself or of his God and he would place, have it placed throughout the land, his rule and his realm to remind people who they really had to obey. We see this in George Orwell's 1984, don't we? If you've read that or you watched one of the, the movie representations of it, Big Brother is everywhere. 
Everywhere there are pictures of Big Brother. There are statues of Big Brother in every square to remind you who's watching over you. And it's not just for your good. Okay? That's the concept at work here. A representation of God. That's the first part. That's the first word that is used here. Image. Likeness has more the connotation of a resemblance or to the idea of representational. Not just looks like, but actually represents. Like an ambassador represents a nation. And so we function not to, not just to be a picture of what God is like, we also exist to represent God to creation. Because what's the very first thing it says? To rule. We rule on His behalf. We are made, Adam and Eve were made, kings and queens. They operated as God's vice regents. The, the movie came out this week, uh, Robin Hood. Yet another version of Robin Hood. We don't know what the real Robin Hood was like. But King John initially started as a vice regent. He ruled because his brother, Richard the Lionhearted, had left to go to the, to the, uh, in my brain just crusades. There we go. (laughs) Initially, he did not rule on his own authority, but he ruled on the authority of his brother. And that's the idea that is found here. Adam and Eve did not rule on their own authority, but the authority that was delegated to them by God himself. They ruled for him over creation. And so God placed day and night under the authority of the sun and the moon. He placed everything else under the authority of man and woman. We're above them all. By creation and design. We are the only thing that Scripture declares is made in the image and likeness of God. We are the one who has been given authority over everything else. And so we see this thing that that goes through Scripture that we don't often notice, but this idea of covenants. Usually in a covenant there is a Lord and there is a vassal. Okay, There's the big guy and then there's the little guy who kind of is now serving as ruler of this smaller kingdom on the behalf of this big guy. And he pays him lots of tribute. Okay, Sends him lots of tax money. All right? And usually in exchange, the big guy protects the little guy from other little guys. That's the agreement that's made. And what happens is what they, they call a land grant. The big king gives the little king land. As, you know, as part of his loyalty. Okay, to buy his loyalty usually. And you know, I'll give you a little extra land over here. Because this guy wasn't very nice to me, so I'm going to give you part of his land. What we see here is a cosmic land grant. God, the eternal king, is giving to his vassals, Adam and Eve, the earth. And so when when we look at this text in terms of what happens with the Exodus, we, we see that God is fulfilling his land grant to Abraham. As the eternal king, Abraham gave land, uh, gave Abraham land in Palestine, Canaan, the whole land of Canaan. He, as king, had the right to grant it to whomever he wishes. And so what we find in Exodus is God fulfilling that promise, that land grant, and therefore the Israelites have a right to enter that land. Which is why when we get to the end of time, God's going to give it all to us. Not just a little strip in the, in the Middle East. Everything will be granted to those who are faithful to him. 
who have come under his authority and his blessing. All right, that took longer than I thought it would. But we see next in the scripture this, this threefold blessing, or as we talked about before, blessing has the idea of empowerment. It's not just, I hope it goes well with you, but I'm giving you the power for it to go well with you. He says, be fruitful. Have lots of babies. Okay? Fill the earth. Subdue it and rule it. And they're tied together. Because humanity cannot subdue the earth unless it first fills it. And it certainly can't rule it until it first subdues it. But what's going on here in the big picture is that God is wanting to fill the earth with his representational and representative image, people. He's not content for there to be two people who who represent him and resemble him, but he wants all the world to know that it belongs to him. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, there is no part of this world that Christ does not say, it is mine. And so God is sending humanity into the world to declare that it belongs to him and to rule it on his behalf. That's what we see taking place in this threefold blessing that God gives. And so we see that in the giving of this blessing, God also has authority over us. He has authority over us that includes how we run our families. That includes the reality of sex and where it is proper for it all to take place. That, that includes our vocations and our, our time. Because all of this is a part of what we see in Genesis 1. And so God makes humanity to be this living representation of his rule in creation. That's the first part of this. The second part of this is that made in his image, humanity reflects God's glory. The threefold blessing reveals not just the fact that we are under God's rule, but it also reflects God's glory. How does it do that, Steve? He's telling them to do what he has just done. Doesn't he? What did God just do? He subdued and he filled because he rules. That's what takes place in all of those days in creation. We talked about it last week. And so he's basically saying, go and do likewise. Now, obviously, we don't divide night from day. That's not what, that's not what he's talking about. We don't have this power, uh, in our, in ourselves to do any of these things. Um, on a weird note, you know, Benny Hinn, okay, he said that in order for Adam to have authority and dominion over the birds, he had to be able to fly. So, you know, and apparently we lost that in the fall. So, no, that's not, that's not what's going on here. He's not getting, like, superhuman powers here. He's not Superman, uh, this Adam, nor is Eve a superhuman. But we are to subdue and fill and rule precisely because God has subdued and filled and rules. Okay? He did not create everything in an instant like he could precisely because he wants to set the pattern. Now, there will be some who say that this is just poetic license, shall we say? That God didn't really do it this way, but that it's, Moses just wrote it this way to instruct us? Well, uh, I think God actually did do it this way to instruct us, <laughs> to let us know what we, as people who are made in his image, are supposed to be doing. And to know the rhythm and pattern of our lives, the seven-day pattern that unfolds 
six of work, and we see God working during the day. And primarily, we work during the day. Aside from some of us who have the unfortunate reality of working in jobs that don't shut down, like the healthcare industry doesn't shut down, right? Policemen doesn't stop. People are certainly good when the sun goes down, right? Was that your experience, Nathan? Okay. People do bad things when the sun goes down. Okay. For an athlete to be out after midnight, bad thing. Bad thing. Okay. So we're to subdue and to rule, and, and both of these terms indicate that there is some opposition that, for some reason, the creation is not easily swayed. It is difficult to make creation subservient, and this is before the fall. I was watching Michael Crichton talk about um, his book, State of Fear, when it came out. And one of the things he talked about was he, he talked about the history of Yellowstone National Park in California. And essentially what it boils down to is that some people will say that basically if you just let nature be nature, everything will be okay. And that was the, the assumption of the people who, who started to manage Yellowstone National Park. And they managed it into a disaster. Because there was no one to rule over it. And so predators got out of control. And soon the, all, there were almost no deer left. And so they've said, oh, well, now we've got to step in on behalf of the, you know, the deer. So we'll kill all of the predators. And then guess what happens? Then the deer population goes up through the roof. They didn't see that humanity has an important part to play in the whole ecological system precisely because he is intended to subdue and to rule it. And when we step back and don't do our role in that, in that part of the system, it goes haywire. Bad things happen. We are meant to subdue and to rule. We are meant to reshape creation. We are meant to build things, to develop things that haven't existed before. To kind of switch, you know, Gordon Gecko's phrase, progress is good. We're not to be anti-progress, but our, the creation mandate implies that we are to be engaged in progress, in taming this creation. We are to utilize creation, particularly to create culture. Thinking about my house, because I brought it up a couple times recently, and I'm in the process now of, so to speak, creating culture in my house. I'm putting stuff on the walls. My pictures of Fenway Park and my new Red Sox clock are on the wall of my office. Okay. I'm beginning to indoctrinate my children in the ways of various things. What is important to us is going to be up on the walls. Family and friends and photos will be up on the walls. We will be communicating to our children that that is important. That family is good. That friends are important. People matter. They're going to learn about Christ there. We're forming a culture in our family. Hopefully a grace-oriented, gospel-centered, Jesus Christ-centered culture in our family. And that's part of the creation mandate. To fill it with good stuff because we rule in His stead. So, not only that aspect, but this whole be fruitful and multiply. Okay. How, how many people does it take to be fruitful and multiply? It takes two, right? To create three or more. 
points to the, reation, the relational reality of the Trinity, of who God is. God made us relational creatures because he is a relational person. God is love, right? First John. Love must have an object. The members of the Trinity are in a community of love. And they chose to create, to share their love. And so, as part of this, what this relational aspect of our, our, our creation and our task points to this reality of God as community that he invites us to share. So we reflect his glory in our work and we reflect his glory in our relationships. Community matters. So if these two things are true, that we reflect his glory and we represent his rule, why are things so messed up now? Which is why we have got a four-point sermon instead of a three-point sermon this week. Is that fallen... Humanity now distorts God's image. Adam's disobedience did something profound. It didn't just mean that he was on the outs with God, but it meant that he distorted God's image. We've been going to the the Chick-fil-A down by the Tucson Mall, and the kids love to go in there in the, the little play area. And one of the things that's in the play area is one of those little fun house mirrors. And, of course, I'm always the one who gets sucked going in there with them. So... And Jaden wanted to show me the funhouse mirror yesterday. So I kind of stood there and it's like, and I really couldn't see myself because, you know, it's made for kids, so it's like this tall. And, <laughs> but Jaden's head was like, you know, got stretched out. So her head was really big and her body was really small and then her legs got really big again. She was disproportionate. That's what sin has done. It's taken us who are in God's image and has distorted us so that we're not really representing who God is accurately. We distort it. And so our own personal disobedience uh, goes beyond that. And and that we begin to tell lies about who the Creator is, the one whose image we bear. We see I see this all the time in in parenting. And it I'm not always showing my kids who God is. Because I get out of balance and out of whack. And that's when I hate myself. There are those moments where I just want to be in my office at home and not be bothered because I just, I don't like how I responded to that. Because now, not just of a, you know, is that I didn't do what I wanted to do, but I've lied to my kids about who God is. And we all do that. We lie to other people about who God is by the decisions we make and the choices, the actions we take and the attitudes we have. We're not Reflecting who God is, we're reflecting the glorious ruin, the ruin part, not the glorious part. We're not reflecting the dignity we have as, as made in God's image, but we're reflecting the depravity we have as sons of Adam instead of sons of God. That's the problem. That's the fundamental problem with the world as it is now. And so I, I, I'm just going to highlight three distortions. You know, I, I promised you I'd do some of this last week, so here kind of it is. Is The first distortion is that many serve the creation rather than subdue it. Just like Yellowstone Park. You know, then it became a slave to it. 
And so they served its interests instead of it existing for their pleasure and glory. Does that make sense? When, when, uh, you know, instead of enjoying something, you get ruled by it. it. Happens to us with technology all the time, doesn't it? It was created to make our lives easier, and yet we have to keep fixing it. I feel like I'm always fixing it. We can easily begin to serve it so that it runs our day as opposed to making our day easier, facilitating. The, the relationship gets turned upside down with, te- with technology and with creation. Okay? Another distortion, okay, is that many selfishly exploit creation rather than seeking to conserve creation. Thought about this in terms of um, some conservative spokesman. Okay, when talking about various energy bills that have come up, what's their response? Go buy a bigger SUV. That's wrong. Okay, I'm not trying to get political. I'm trying to get us to look at what the uh, our role in creation and it is not to waste. It is not to exploit. We utilize, but that doesn't mean we destroy just because we don't like the other agenda, which is just as wrong. And so we get caught as Christians between environmental, radical environmentalism and radical conservatism, which exploits, and we're, we're trying to figure out what this is, where we're sensitive to the reality of our place to do what is best to Rule, subdue, and rule creation. That can be difficult to define. But I know the answer isn't on this side or this side. And yet there is where we often go. Cavallero Corollary number 643. Disagreement tends to push you to extremes. So instead of arguing against this with this, we argue this. I see it in theology all the time. And I've done it so many times it makes me sick. This is what we do with fallen people. So anyway, another distortion is is this separation of, of sex and children from marriage. That's a distortion of who we are. We're going to look at that a little more next week with the institution of marriage in chapter 2. But what, what we've tended to do is kind of Pull them out so that we can enjoy sex all we want. Or pull them out so that we no longer connect it at all with filling the earth, with having children. Watching one of those, I'm a Val Kilmer fan. So I was watching a Val Kilmer fan that was, a Val Kilmer movie that was on the other day. And they had this clip of some, you know, probably a stock footage of some fake scientist. I don't know. But, you know, the earth is too populated. One of those things. We need to have population control. There's lots of place where the image of God is not yet. There's plenty of room to fill with His image. So we don't need to dist- we don't need to distort it by separating these two things. We need to keep it all together the way God intended, the way God meant. 
And so fallen humanity has made a mess of creation in numerous ways and dis- because it is distorting the image of God. Is there hope? Yeah. Because of Jesus. The perfect image who restores all who believe. Let's unpack this for a couple of minutes. The Father sent His Son as a man, as a person, a human being, precisely in one, th- in one aspect, to show humanity what He's really like. Because we don't know. Because we're not functioning like we're supposed to. Remember, we're the funhouse mirror of God. So it's really hard for us to know what God is really like. And so to let us know who, what He really is like, He sent His Son. His Son, which Scripture testifies, is, let's see, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1. 2 Corinthians 4 has this phrase that the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And so to we who did not know what God really was like, He sent His Son to show us what He's really like. But that's not all Jesus did. Not only did He come to reveal, but He also came to restore you know, we've probably seen, most of us have seen that show, you know, was it Maximum or something makeover, Extreme Makeover. See, I don't watch the show, actually. I laugh at it. But, uh, and so Jesus undertakes this incredible rehabilitation, remodeling project for humanity. He comes to restore us to what we were intended to be. And the first part of that is he bears the punishment for all the lies that we have spoken about God with our actions. He bears the guilt on our place. And so we can have forgiveness for the ways in which our actions are inconsistent with who God is. Whether it's at home or the workplace or in the church or all by yourself. Jesus can bear it. There can be forgiveness for all who believe, who place their trust in Him. But not only that, but we begin to understand that sanctification is an application of the work of Christ to restore God's image in us. That's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, where he says this, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. This new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. So another way of understanding sanctification is that God is renewing you in His image. He's taking out the distortions that sin has created. He's beginning to take out those weird parts of the mirror so that your head is not too big anymore, that your body's not too small anymore, and that your legs are not too long. Jesus is setting us right. Or C.S. Lewis writes in, I think it's Mere Christianity, that God basically says, is that if you let me, I will do this. I will make you perfect. And no matter what it costs, and no matter what it takes, I will accomplish this goal. And so that's what God is doing 
in what we call sanctification. He's making us perfect, and the standard of perfection is yes. Renewing us in His likeness because we have messed it up. He's putting it in us back together again. That's a better way of looking at sanctification than keeping a whole bunch of rules. God's making you like Him again. Because you sold it for pleasure. Making you like that again. How does that take place? Well, one part of this, one application of this, is, is the reality that we become what we worship. And we find that throughout the prophets. And they're condemning the idolatry of the Israelites because they become worthless like the idols that they worship. Well, that works in reverse, too. We see that, in, in fact, when, when Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about how the God of this age has blinded the minds of believers. Okay. Well, later on, well, actually earlier in chapter 3, talking about uh, the ministry of Moses versus the ministry of Christ, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Okay? Are being transformed into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What's the, con- the context there? He's talking about Moses. What happened to Moses when he was in the presence of God? His face glowed. And so when he came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face so no one would see the diminishing glory that was upon his face. Paul is turning this upside down and says, this glory does not diminish, but when we gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it actually grows. We become more transformed. It's not a temporary thing like Moses' glory, but it begins to completely transform who we are. Our glory increases as we gaze upon the gospel and the face of Jesus Christ. And so part of how we change is by focusing our attention on Him and who He is and what He has done. That's the first part of the application. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, in part, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfection, author and perfecter of our faith. But then there's a second part of this. Okay, that's sort of, you know, what God does in us, but let's look a little bit at what God is going to do through us, because the second application has to do with the Great Commission. The Great Commission is connected to the creation mandate. It's essentially the same thing, but now it puts it in spiritual terms instead of physical terms. Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He wants to fill the world with His renewed image that reveals who He is Because now, through the process of sanctification, they're being made more and more like Him. They're more accurately and correctly reflecting who He is. But not just that, but they've come under His authority. They're growing in their obedience and they're revealing the rule of God in their lives to a creation that needs to see it. And so, when we're undertaking this process that we call evangelism, we're not just saving a soul. We're renewing the earth. 
We're partaking in God's plan, God's purpose, to restore human beings to his likeness. To restore them to what we were intended to be, and yet even greater. There is hope because of what Christ has done. Our purpose right now is the Great Commission. And to be changed ourselves. That we might reflect His glory. Doesn't that sound a whole lot better and more appealing than you're a mistake? (laughs) Or that you just hear and have fun while you're here? Sounds a whole lot more appealing to me. I think we have a whole better story than the naturalists do. A much better story. And so these two starting points have very different end points. Naturalism has no real purpose. It just is. It has no hope because one day it will just all fall apart. And there is really no dignity. You're just a smart animal. And you can't really blame that on anyone. It just happened through the process of natural selection. So, have fun. Christianity, however, views people as this glorious ruin made in the image of God that are fallen, yet still capable of significant influence upon creation. We have hope because Christ has come to be the Redeemer of humanity and creation. And we're a part of that. Why don't we pray? Father, we uh, thank you that though we are a part of creation, we are set apart from the rest of creation. That we have been made in your image, that we have been made in your likeness, and we confess that this is humbling because we so often fail to represent you. We so often fail to reflect your glory who you really are. And we desperately need the Spirit to be at work in us to restore your image that we might more accurately reflect your glory to this confused world that we live in. Empower us to make disciples in this city, bringing people back under your rule, that they might long to obey everything Jesus has commanded because you have put a new principle in their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your perfect image that you sent to bring your people back to you. Amen.